Do you have any leader that you look up to, that you're inspired by, that provides you with hope, courage, direction, vision? Many of us feel today that there's a crisis in leadership. But really, the question goes back throughout history. What is the role of a leader? In different generations, are different types of leaders needed? That's what we will be addressing, and I welcome you. Do we need a new type of Jewish leadership today? Is the topic that I'll be discussing. Please join me. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we will be discussing, do we need a new type of Jewish leadership today? The truth is, the question can be asked about leadership in general. But I want to focus on Jewish leadership, and uh, many of these themes can be applied and spill over to many different types of leaders, and in general, uh, our state of society. I think a good place to begin is, why, what is the role of a leader in the first place? Why do we need leaders? We're all human beings. We're blessed with intelligence, emotions, different faculties, skills, resources, tools. We can do research. So why do we need leaders in the first place? So it's interesting to go back in history and really till a few hundred years ago, what the leaders of the world were either monarchs, church leaders in the Western world, kings, emperors, czars, one person, who led an entire nation, sometimes millions and millions of people. And that person usually had absolute authority, which, of course, as some point out, absolute authority, absolute power brings absolute corruption. But there were leaders that were benevolent, but still, they decided, on a whim, they could decide the destiny and the, of any human being under their rule and control. It's only in the last few centuries there arose the concept of individual freedoms, the right to elect a leader, and that leaders don't have absolute power, which poses, of course, the contrast. What is the difference between the two? I mean, it's obvious what the difference is. With the argument would be made that in a free society, in a democracy, where people choose their leaders, the leaders do not have that absolute control, so that absolute corruption would disappear. But is that truly accurate? Is there no corruption among our leaders today, even in the free countries? So you can say it's less, because there's accountability, there are checks and balances, there are opposition parties. So that's all true. But it still doesn't really define what the role of a leader is. But it does help us understand the need for a leader. What's the need for a leader? Why can't we just rely on our own resources? The basic simple answer is because human beings are subjective. We're prejudiced, we're biased, self-love, and our self-interests would conflict with each other and do conflict with each other. So to use the expression in actually in the ethics of the fathers, that if they were not for the fear of the king, or the kingship, that there was someone that, someone that leading the entire country or the entire empire or the entire nation, one person would swallow up another. That's the expression used. 
which simply means that self-interest would we would self-destruct. We would begin the battle. So we battle with each other, compete with each other, to the point that we would literally kill each other, one way or another. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, however you want to define it. A leader is a sense like in that sense, like I don't call it a referee, but a person who makes sets policy and controls the situation, establishes authority, and not everybody can do whatever they like. That's the basic premise that was always understood as being the key to all leadership. There's an interesting book called the the um, uh, it'll come to me the name in a moment that talks about how democracies actually grew out of the English translation of the Bible. Because up till the point that there were no English translations, it was always accepted that the Bible said that you should appoint the king, the Hebrew Republic. That's the name of the book, the Hebrew Republic. That you should appoint the king, as, and that was understood that that was the model of leadership. One ruler, one authority, so you don't have the conflicting powers of individual interests. And he would determine, he or she, if it was a queen, would determine and be the arbiter of what, what, what's determined as policy, the values, and so on. The goal, of course, there, that the, that king would be a humble king, a humble leader, who would also be the living example of what is morality and ethics and kindness and lead the nation toward a better society, better interaction. But the king did have absolute authority. And that was the prevailing model. In the Hebrew Republic, he argues that once the English translation of the Bible began to spread, they realized the story of Samuel, that when the people came to the prophet Samuel and said, please appoint for us a king, like all other nations have a king and a leader, and he became angry at them. He says, you have God as king. Why do you need a human king? And until they insisted, he went to God, and God says, yes, give them a king, and he appointed King Saul, the first Jewish king. Now, what was the problem? Doesn't the Torah say clearly, appoint a king? So why was Samuel angry at the people when they asked for that? So we'll talk about that a little later in this conversation. But the point is that that opened up the idea that, one second, not, the monarchs are not the only model. Clearly, from Samuel's opposition to their wanting that, there may be other models of um, leadership. And that was one of the factors, he, he argues, that opened up the beginnings of democracy and another type of leadership. But everyone, everyone agrees that you need leaders because without that, you'd have chaos. You'd have anarchy. Now, what you need to put into place are checks and balances to make sure the leader doesn't become the anarchist, that the leader doesn't abuse his position. I mean, even when you talk about the arguments between socialism, Marxism, socialism, communism, and its counterpart, capitalism, there too leadership plays a tremendous role. Because the argument of Marx was, and the socialists were, that all of us are equal. And we should have one pot where everybody puts their money into and their efforts. And then you distribute equally to each person to avoid the hierarchy that creates competi competition, that creates the class distinctions. The problem was, 
And that argument goes that no one should have any private property. I mean, there were different variations of the, of the theory, but one, which was the dominant one, that the whole world has to become socialist or communist. Because if even one person remains with private property, you still have a problem. But the argument was that let's do it in stages. Let's first create a model country with this. And it was very attractive because it essentially, theoretically, on paper, sounded great. That way you avoid, you avoid hierarchies, you avoid power, fights for power and control. The problem was a small little one, which ended up being the upending and the complete undermining of the entire theory. Who is going to control the transition from the world in which we are to that so-called utopia? It would have to be individuals. Again, leaders. And what happened? Those leaders ended up abusing individual power more than any capitalistic subsystem. Sounds ironic, but that's what happens when you give power to an individual. And the name of the good of the people. What did Stalin do? Lenin before him. Especially Stalin. Millions, hundreds of millions, they say. Tens of millions, for sure. Died. Famine. In the name of mother, the mother country, or called the Soviet Union. The name of the good, the greater good, individuals were completely trampled upon and destroyed. So wherever you twist and turn, you're always going to find pros and cons to any system. The capitalist argument is, no, let everybody, let, let the greed, just harness the greed toward a, a greater good by creating rules. So yes, people will compete, but they'll be motivated because they want to profit. Will it create the alienation that uh, Marx argued? It does, and it, and it did, and it does. But still, as Churchill said, that democracy is the worst system but he has not yet found a better one. So in other words, based on human conventions and human tools, it's the best we have. Is it perfect? Far from perfect, as we see. So based on all of this, what do we conclude in the context of leaders? That leaders essentially are managers. Earlier years, they were complete, absolute authorities. As time passed, even though there are some countries that still have dictators, they have despots, they still have the totalitarian regimes, but most of the countries of the world have either a full democracy or a partial form of it. There's a website, Freedom House, that, that uh, gauges and, uh, and the, the trajectory of free countries, semi-free, not free countries, if you want to look it up. It's interesting. It also, as you see, you see the trajectories going better and better and being more freer. But at best, managers, administrators, CEOs... In the United States, we call it the president of the United States. Washington, famously, George Washington, refused to be called king and be seen as a king because they saw the abuses of King George and other kings in Europe. President, the president of a company, the president of the United States, who's elected by the people, for the people, every four years, and the same with the other legislators, whether the House of Representatives or the Senate, Congress. So what do you see from that? That we understand leaders in that context. But based on that, some, something sorely lacking in everything I just described. That would be good 
if you're talking about managing, maintaining, you need to, we need, human beings need utilities, we need social services, we need firefighters, we need police. So the person like that, an efficient CEO, the head of the company, or in this case, the head of the country, or if you talk about states, the governors of states, or mayors, and I'm talking now the American model, but in other countries, similar type of leaders, their role is to manage all of that, to lead and give direction. There's a problem, come up with solutions. They have their teams. What's sorely lacking? I'm sure you can figure it out. This, I've not even mentioned once, the idea, well, I mentioned it as the standard, but I've not mentioned all of this. Where is the vision, the moral vision, that is so necessary in human life? So some argue that's not the role of, of the government leaders. Every individual has to choose that freedom of religion or whatever values people embrace, and that should not be something, the separation of church and state. However, when you go back to the biblical definition of a king, the real role of a king was to be the supreme role model of what it means to be a refined human being. And to be the ultimate selfless individual, the great leader, maybe the greatest of them all, the first of them all, Moses, was defined as the humblest man that walked on this earth. Would you attribute that to any leader? I can't find a leader that has that. There are, they all have some measure of humility, I'm sure everybody has, but it's not what defines them. It's not that what defines them is usually ruthlessness is an attribute, and I don't always mean that, I don't mean that necessarily in the worst possible way, but a type of driving, blind driving ambition, good connections, good fundraisers, persuasive, charismatic, that public appeal, it's good on television, good on the screen, wealthy, or the ability to be connected to wealth. In other words, defined by all the things that he or she has. The true leader, going back to what we said earlier, to address the subjectivity and the self-interest that every person has, is to help people grow to be deeper spiritual human beings. Not to dictate religion. That's not what I'm saying. But to be that role model. That's far more than a CEO, and a president, and a manager, and an administrator. Because that's the real issue we're talking Because if it's just an administrator, fine. We need that. You have to have a head of a company. You can't have everybody calling the shots. You need someone that gives the guidance and direction. The ultimate authority, so to speak. I mean that not in absolute authority, but I mean the authority in whatever entity or organization that leader is. But the thing that human beings need most is inspiration and direction and guidance to become greater people. Better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better friends. The area called love. And that is where there's a tremendous crisis. As far as the first aspect of leadership, well, for better or for worse, different leaders, some excel, some fail, some most in between somewhere. Due to the political climate, we don't even always know because people just go for someone and against someone, not even based on merits, based on propaganda or based on what the media is feeding you. And I'm not talking about both sides of the aisle now, but this latter thing I'm discussing that is the key to everything. Now, why 
is it not an emphasis in let's call it secular model of leadership today? Well, it's a longer analysis, but here's what I would suggest because it's important for our discussion here. And that is because in the last few hundred years, when the battle between religion and science began, where scientific open inquiry, open-minded thinking, began to challenge the religious dogma, and much of it was actually not based on anything pure, but religious control. Not that religious values weren't values, but it was taken, a lot of religious institutions, the control was taken over by people who uh, were in power and wasn't necessarily all used for godly purposes. So when that battle began, what happened was that type of, the, the toxins that some saw being fed by religion, they wanted to completely reject it. And they threw out the baby with the bathwater. So in the subsequent years, what happened was it went to the other extreme. Science became a religion. And values was something that really became something either moral relativism or let everybody decide on their own. And it truly, till today, drives fear into many people's hearts when they think the leaders are going to dictate our moral, spiritual, and religious values. Now, there's much to, much to be concerned about. That's why the United States Constitution, separation of church and state. But that a leader doesn't dictate the standards, but lives up to them, that became, that fell through the cracks. That's one point I would make. There are many other aspects of it. And in general, society has gravitated toward a type of like either moral relativism, where it became so much open that you really don't have any real absolute standards. Obviously, every country, every, every generation has the standards it establishes. Like, for example, today, if somebody, God forbid, wants to commit suicide and jump off a bridge, they're going to um, mobilize the fire department and the police and stop it. You won't just say you're free to do whatever you want because the argument is the person's being self-destructive and destructive to society's values. But you could argue one second. Everybody has their control. They can do whatever they want with their lives. No, but people, we know there are certain lines. Where those lines are are very blurred. Freedom of speech. So how much can you say? Freedom of speech leads to, what about obscenities, pornography? So that's allowed. But as soon as it gets into child pornography or things that cross lines that most people find offensive, we draw a line. Why that line? It's sensibilities, it's the majority. No one really can point a finger to it. Freedom of speech, where you can speak hate speech, as long as it doesn't so-called incite violence. But we know that all hate speech may. So there are all these lines that are difficult to determine. But all of this does not address the most important thing, that a leader should, you should expect from a leader to be the most refined human being. So what's happened is, with all our progress in technology, and freedoms as well, and I consider that all progress, I would say equally, it's not been equal, the progress, in creating standards that we would expect from leaders in our lives. So some argue that's the place you go to rabbis and clergy and spiritual and uh, religious leaders, educators. But when there's a dichotomy and a dissonance between the different leaders of a community and a country and a people, you have a lot of confusion. 
And this is the world in which our children are growing up. And with this context, even though you may see this as an introduction, I think it's vital to the topic. Because let's now apply it to leadership today, and as I said, specifically to Jewish leadership today. The Jewish people have been here from the beginning of time, longer than any other people. We're talking about close to 4,000 years, 3,800 years from Abraham. 3,330 years ago, the Torah, known as the Bible, was given at Sinai. And this became the basis of the Jewish constitution. But it's more than a Jewish constitution. It's a constitution of living ethically, morally, spiritually to the highest possible standards in becoming a partner with God in making this world a beautiful world, a home for the divine, spiritualizing the material world that instead of materialism being an end in itself, instead of self-interest driving our lives, that we all see ourselves as different musical notes of a large cosmic symphony, each one of us contributing our unique individuality in refining and elevating and improving our personal lives, our sphere of influence, our families, our friends, our communities, and collectively, we create a more refined universe. And there's a system to do so, do's and don'ts. They're called mitzvot. Do, thou shalt do this and do not do that. Love your neighbor. Do not hate your neighbor. Just to use a simple one of those laws. This system at the time was exclusively Jewish, but it slowly spread. And with the birth of Christianity, and then a few centuries later, the birth of Islam, this became popular among millions and then billions of people today. Are there differences between the religions? There are, but there are many things that are in common. And this has affected our social infrastructures and what we expect of each other. But what about the leaders, the leaders of these movements? And we go across the board, you can go also to the East and the Far East, whether you talk Buddhism, or Confucianism, or Taoism, and all the isms. What about the leaders? So in the Western world, what happened, as I mentioned before, many leaders became corrupt. Not overnight, and not all. Corrupt means maybe their self-interest somewhat clouded their judgment, which of course undermines the whole point. The whole point is to create a higher standard of refinement where the leaders, are they representing that? So those that did represent it and do represent it, beautiful. But those that don't, it's not neutral. They create actual damage. Because when you see a leader and you're a child, an impressionable child, then you find out this leader is a lowlife, an abuser, a molester even. Then it's not just, okay, let's get rid of him, let's find someone else. Your whole perspective is skewed. That's called abuse. Because you say, one second, this was supposed to be a standard that I'm supposed to live up to, and look what happened here. And for children, it's difficult to say, separate the person from the standards, from the values. And with these children grow into adults, and hence a tremendous prejudice, and a legitimate one. Call it a stereotype, but still legitimate against the whole idea of religious establishment. This is a very prevailing attitude. Some more conscious than others. I deal with this all the time and see it all the time. 
very disturbing because people meet me and they look at me and they say, okay, you're one of them. Meaning one of those hypocrites. And even if they get to know me and they say, okay, maybe you're a little different. So you're an exception. But don't tell me about this religious world and so on. So in that context, Jewish leadership, yes, we're suffering in many ways. I don't want to use the word bankrupt. It's a very strong word. But there are many problems. Are there very fine rabbis and leaders of congregations and communities? Absolutely. I have met many in my childhood and my adult life. But that could be because they're personally refined human beings. As leaders go, the unfortunate reality is that many leaders will tell you they begin with pure intentions, but then they have to deal with realities on the ground. For example, let's just use an example. Will a leader, a Jewish leader, be biased by someone that supports his organization or synagogue, giving him millions of dollars a year? How does he control and make sure that that does not bias him in areas of morality? Well, let's say that individual has an argument with someone else. Can this rabbi really sit in judgment? And will he recuse himself? And I'm here not here to be a whistleblower or try to expose. I'm, I'm talking far more theoretical. So when you, if you don't have an answer for that, you say, one second, I don't know if I can trust him. Trust goes to the heart of the whole issue. Now, what I'm discussing so far, you can say, is primarily, or at all times, these issues are not specifically today. We titled this, uh, this class, that we need a new type of Jewish leadership today. Because anything that we're discussing is amplified in our times. First of all, we live in a global village. There's no longer a community community. So once upon a time, a rabbi, a Jewish leader, was in that community, and he was not a leader of another part of the community. There were some that rose and were accepted by a large number of the Jews in different communities, but generally speaking, it was more localized. So that immediately is a very different picture. Today, it's far less than, it's still localized to some extent, but everybody knows what's going on everywhere else. So there's a flaw, it's quite amplified in the eyes of everyone. So, for instance, when you're dealing with a challenge today of uh, what's called the agunot problem, the chained women, the husband refuses to give a get that divorced his wife. They go to a court of Besdin, a court of law. They sit and they judge, you must give a get. You can't force him, but they rule that he has to give a get. So he just picks himself up and goes somewhere else. Have the rabbis dealt with his dilemma? No, not yet. We hope they do. So people then come away with the conclusion, I have no women who have told me, I can no longer be part of this. I grew up in the community, and religious community. I can no longer be part of it. And then you find out that some rabbis do have biases. So that doesn't help the situation. Now again, I want to qualify all this because there are many good rabbis and good intentions. But do they have the power? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the loudest ones and sometimes the ones that are the most corrupt are the most powerful ones. So we have real issues that have to be addressed. And that where you require true leadership. Jewish leadership was Moses. He was the model. A humble person. A man of God. That you went to him, you knew there was no other agenda except what God wants. And it was not possible to be, he was not corruptible. 
in any sense of the word. So to apply it to the challenge of today, the next big challenge of our times, is the clash between modernity and faith. Again, when people lived in local communities, shtetls, ghettos, even when they were persecuted, ironically, in many ways it strengthened their internal bonds. And it also crystallized their values. Today, because we live in comforts, and it's, as I said, a global village, because of that, we live in a modern world, and we can't put up ghetto walls. Everything is everywhere. And now, Judaism is at risk. Assimilation has already devastated a big part of the Jewish population, but at risk to further do so, because now you have other options. So is the solution to close down those options or to block ourselves, put up blinders? No, the solution is to be a leader that digs deeper and teaches the people that Judaism and faith and all that it stands for is a better option. In other words, competition can either frighten you and you try to just eliminate it or it can make you dig deeper and present your value proposition in a better way. And that's what's needed today. And that's where we absolutely need new elements in our leadership today that firstly understands the challenge, understands its dimensions, and has a proper approach. So what's the approach to that? So that brings me back to one key word, vision. Vision is what's lacking most in all forms of leadership, including Jewish leadership. It's not just about giving a sermon on Saturday and Shabbat and holidays. It's not just about resolving halachic legal questions. Those are all important. But I would qualify them more as administrative elements in Jewish leadership. There's a spiritual element in Jewish leadership, and that is the vision. Giving people a bigger picture, allowing them to get to rise above the minutia of the quotidian, of our regular routines, expecting more, demanding more in a good way, in a loving way, rising, taking the higher road, giving people an approach to conflict management, conflict resolution between spouses, between children and parents, between different community members. Are there individuals that are doing that? Absolutely, but we need a lot more. And it has to be accelerated because we have real forces at work. It's not a neutral state any longer. It was never neutral, but today everything is accelerated and everything is exposed. And as such, it's critical to have that type of leadership. I know from my own life, I grew up in an Orthodox Hasidic community, Chabad, Crown Heights. And so I've seen the best and I've seen the worst, unfortunately. You read the standards, the values, the most beautiful spiritual standards, really the sky and beyond is the limit in how one can grow and connect with transcendent, with transcendence and get beyond just survival. And then sometimes you look at the systems, the bureaucracies, they don't live up to that. It's very disturbing. So some people just don't want to notice. They don't look. I don't know, I'm not able to be that type of person that can't look. So it's disturbing. Some people, it causes them to want to leave and actually leave. Do they find a better life? Maybe, maybe not. 
Most cases not. It's not so simple. It's the same as you growing up in a home and your parents teach you values and then you see they don't live up to the values. So it's one thing people make mistakes. That's a given. So no one's going to be perfect. But when you see a, a, a glaring contradiction, like it's almost a cynical contradiction, that can be extremely disturbing to the point where you start wondering, why am I here? And then there are the conformists or the goody-goodies who don't challenge anything. They just go along and they're fine people. And they're not really, they're oblivious in a certain way. So there are different ways to react to it. I was taught or trained, and maybe I'm wired this way, that you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. So that's why God blessed me with communication tools. I speak, I write. Thank God I've studied so I know I'm grounded in the sources. And I believe my role is to speak up, which is what I'm doing. And not to say everything is just great, and also not just to criticize everything. It's how do we extract, yes, the baby from the bathwater, even the bathwater may be a bit dirty or corrupted, and create a better future. And here's where all of us are responsible, which leads me to a critical point. And leaders, above all, should recognize this. That there's power in the, in the individual. They call it um, wisdom of the crowds. Individuals, grassroots initiative is critical today. Not to replace leaders, but to actually help shape them. Help expect, demand and expect from them what it is that you want from a leader. Because at the end of the day, a rabbi or a Jewish leader is either appointed or elected or in some other way embraced. So we have a big role to play. The more we expect, the better leaders we'll have. The leaders have to look at themselves and say, okay, let's do some introspection and soul-searching to become better leaders. What are the problems of our time? A Jewish leader and every leader should speak to their communities, to respective communities and say, tell me the 10 biggest problems that you are experiencing in your life or in general in our community or generally in our world today and see what they say and put it together and you may come up and say, wow, a lot of people sharing the same type of feelings. There may be differences. But above all, what you create with that is trust. You create a relationship. You may not always have the solution, but if someone were to ask you, but, but someone will feel, at least you're concerned with my concerns. That's a big, a big step, because it means I know that you care, and I know that you're attempting to do everything possible to resolve the situation. Instead of pushing things under the, under the carpet and just may, trying to maintain the status quo, what Jewish leadership needs today is proactive, preventive medicine. And the only way to do that is to dig deeper. And yes, sometimes it's uncomfortable because what you, become, you may come up with, problems you didn't want to hear about. Many of the challenges, I remember over 10 years ago, I, I'm, not, I'm not tooting my horn, but I think I was one of the first or maybe the first to actually write very openly about child abuse and molestation in the community. I was specifically talking to the Jewish community, even though it's in other communities, because being Jewish and growing up in the Jewish community, it's one of the concerns. And the pushback was, I cannot tell you. What are you doing? You're opening up a can of worms. People told me, if you start doing that, who knows how far it's going to go. And I said, one second here. Why are we talking about the abusers? Why don't we talk about the victims, the survivors? 
That's who we should be caring about. How many children or children that have become adults are crying because their voices were never heard. They've been silenced and they've been hurt. And we're just suggesting, you know what, get over it and let's move on. Now obviously, it has to be done in an authentic and legitimate way. You can't have a lynch mob and vigilantes, especially accuse people who are innocent. But not to address a cancer like that. Now where the pushback was coming from, with good intentions, that is going to create all kinds of, all kinds of controversy. It will upset the, the racking the boat disturbing and disrupting the whole community structure and hierarchy, bringing down leaders. My response and my attitude was the exact opposite. If it's a cancer, let's get rid of it and build a better world, build a better community. And if a leader is, did, did, did something wrong, they got to go. Simple as that. It's not about cruelty. It's on the contrary. It's being compassionate. And again, I'm not going to say this is a conspiracy. This is what happens when you have a status quo and nobody really wants to shake it. But we have to shake it. We have to dig deep. We need our people, whoever they may be, feeling heard, listened to. Now, to be honest, many parents also take the same attitude. A child tells them something happened and they also push it aside. It's more comfortable to do so. It's easier. So this is not just a about leadership. It's about the leaders even in our own homes and educators in our schools, in our camps, other institutions. So we have great challenges today that may have existed before, but first of all, even if they did, we have to deal with us today. We're not dealing in the past. And second of all, there are challenges that are unique to our times due to the world in which we live, the modern world, the exposure, today the, uh, the smartphone, really brings everything into every person's life, how to address and deal with that. I'm specifically staying away from specific dilemmas that deserves its own, its own specialized program and perhaps we'll do one that de- dedicated to that. I'm speaking more about the need to relook at ourselves and our leadership and what is truly lacking. So the answer is yes, we do need a new type of leadership. When I say new, not to take away from the old that was always time-tested. Because remember, Moses and all his successors were true leaders. We want to learn from them. But new means that learning the best from them, discarding that which is unnecessary or even distorted, and mostly adapting and applying all that to the current situation. So it's not new leadership as a new type of Moses. We have the standard. We know exactly what's expected. But we have to make that a reality in our times and apply it to the challenges of our times. In that sense, it's new. Now, this topic really deserves a lot more than the time allotted. And I hope to address it more. But I hope this was also a good beginning to get the conversation going. So each one of us is responsible, whether you're a leader or you don't call yourself a leader. Every one of us plays a role here. There's an interactive element. We can't just sit back and say, okay, let the leaders figure it out. No, that's not correct. You and I, all of us, and the grassroots need to do something. And I don't mean anything that is violent, God forbid, or disrespectful, but firm. Firm expectations. And spell out 
What is it that we need? Approach your rabbi. Approach your community leader. Approach your, the head of the schools where your children go to. And say, in a very pleasant and beautiful way, not here to attack, we're not here to criticize, we're here to help improve things. You will find some will resist, but some won't. And together, we can put our heads together and figure out how to improve things. But remember, take the approach, it's about all win-win, about building. Anyone being attacked and criticized, even if they deserve it, will right away assume a defensive posture, and then you won't have a conversation, because they'll just, critis- they'll just dismiss you as just a malcontent, angry, or whatever it may be. So it's important to be wise about this. And from the leader perspective, it will make you a greater leader. Reach out to your constituents. Listen. Write down. What are the concerns? Some will be easier to resolve. Some will be much more difficult to resolve. But the awareness of a problem is have the cure. In addition to the fact that you build confidence, people say, oh, wow, he cares. He's trying. I have no doubt with these initiatives and many others, and all of us can come up with new ideas and other creative ideas, we can make a dent, more than a dent. We can improve and ultimately create a far better leadership, a far better community, a far better world. Until we can say that the world is is living up to the standards and realizing the purpose for which God created this universe. Thank you so much. This has been Simon Jacobson. Meaningfullife.com is our website. For a go there, please, and you find plenty of materials, inspiring, insightful, challenging, spiritual, psychological tools, as well as many other resources, a robust schedule of events and programs for different types of audience and ages. And please share your comments, your feedback, your critique. I thrive on that. We thrive on that. Our wonderful team. Meaningfullife.com. Everyone be healthy and be well. And remember, every one of us is a leader in our own right. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.